The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 22. Uh, We're continuing in our series. It's called Marriage Exposed, a raw look into covenant and conflict. We took the first two weeks to work through the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, when some religious leaders were questioning him about divorce. Uh, Week one, we looked at Jesus pointing back to Genesis and the fact that marriage is a covenant. And we looked at the the distinction between covenant and a contract and how that should shape our thinking and our approach to marriage. Week two, we dealt with the Bible's teaching on divorce, which also led us back to considering the weight of covenant. Now this week, we're going to look at Ephesians 5 to see the power that marriage has to shape us and teach us to be more like Jesus. And I personally can vouch for the fact, I know that marriage is a great teacher with really a ton of many wonderful lessons. For example, I never knew before I was married that there is a right way to load a dishwasher. I thought you just rinse them and you put them in there neatly and you start the thing. That is not true. Apparently, there's some high-level geometry involved or something, because I'm 16 years deep and still can't get it right. So uh, marriage is teaching me some stuff. And I asked Natalie about lessons that marriage has taught her, and she said that she never knew before being married, to me in particular, that absolutely any food can be slurped, (laughs) regardless of texture, apparently. And so I'm going to eat in the closet from now on. Thanks, hon. Appreciate that. (laughs) She also said, she she had more, she never knew that one person could own 50 flashlights before being married to me. (laughs) Which I think is her way of saying that I light up her life. I'm not sure, but... um, But... Since she went low with that one, I just figured I would bring up the fact that before I was married, I had no idea how truly essential accent pillows are to human flourishing. Uh, But now I do. Point there being marriage is a great teacher (laughs) with lots of very valuable lessons. Uh, Let's see what Ephesians has to say on the subject. Probably more than that, all right? Uh, Ephesians 5, I'm in verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, we always have lots to give away for free. If you don't have something with you right now at the moment to follow along, we will have the verses on the screens for you, okay? So I'm in uh, Ephesians 5, 22, and we're going to read to verse 33, okay? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Praise God for his word. Amen. This is without a doubt some of the most famous biblical instruction on the subject of marriage. And to be sure, we could camp here for weeks and weeks drawing out doctrinal truth and practical application from just these 11 verses. And what I want to key in on with you today is this interesting metaphor woven throughout these verses. It's a metaphor that Paul uses to discuss the way the church relates to Jesus and also how the individual members of the church relate to one another. And here he uses this same analogy to speak about the relationship between a husband and a wife. To help us understand all these different relationships, he paints a word picture using a body. Now remember, for those of you that are not married, because you've either chosen to dedicate yourself in single-minded service to the Lord, or for those of you who are not married but hope to be one day, please don't feel as if God's word here doesn't apply to you. Remember that the Bible's teaching on marriage is so closely linked to the gospel covenant God makes with his people through Christ that much of what we will discuss here will apply broadly and more broadly than just in a marriage relationship. The same way that the gospel helps us understand Christian marriage, Christian marriage can help us understand the gospel. They tend to loop back on each other in helpful and illuminating ways. So we see here, diving right in, wives addressed first in verses 22 through 24 with the command to be subject, and ASB says, some will say, submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Now let's work on that real quick to avoid any confusion and because these verses can cause some contention to say it lightly, all right? This phrase, wise be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord, okay? What does that mean? Well, people have seen it different ways, and it's important we see it the right way, because some of the confusion and contention that comes out of this circles around and revolves around that phrase. As to the Lord, first of all, it, that is not a description of the extent to which she submits to her husband, Okay, so what some have seen here is, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And they'll, they'll think that what that means is that she sh should submit to her husband the same way she submits to Jesus. We know that that can't be what it's saying for lots of reasons. One of them is every other place we see in the scriptures where we're called to submit to anybody other than God, there are always limitations. Paul tells us we submit to the government in Romans 13, right? But we also see that Daniel, when the government said, hey, you're going you're gonna to worship and pray to a king, a, a human king instead of the true king, what did Daniel do? He couldn't go there. We submit to the government up and until the point that they are trying to command or demand that we sin, okay? The same limitations are in place for a wife submitting to a husband. If a husband comes and says, 
hey, we're going to, you know, rob something. Doesn't that sound fun? Right? No, can't do, can't go with you. Sorry. And, and we're going to call our community group leader and maybe some other people, right? So, uh, <laughs> nope, not today. So, The point is, as to the Lord is not saying she submits to her husband the same way and to the same extent that she submits to Jesus, okay? On the other side, it's not, uh, as the Lord is is not the limit, right? So other people have seen this and said, okay, as the Lord is, that means, well, only when, you know, in her opinion, he is doing what Jesus wants. So she submits to him if, if he's doing everything she thinks qualifies, Okay, because that can get real dangerous too. Let, you know, ladies, help me out. Is your judgment on any situation ever sometimes slightly, if only a little bit, skewed by sin? Anybody in here willing to say that that's true of you? Okay, good. Not everybody, and that's terrifying. Um, <laughs> let me help you with something. <laughs> yes is the answer, okay? Uh, and I was being real gentle there, but let me just get more aggressive. A lot of the times, your opinion and understanding and perspective of the situation is skewed by sin, okay? So you can't be the arbiter uh, just based on your opinion or, uh, you know, how you're feeling about the situation uh, if, if, he's, if he's always doing exactly what Jesus wants him to do, okay? So it's, it's not the extent, it's not the limit, as to the Lord is a description of the reason for the submission. Okay, so it, it's, it's understanding that taking her equal and complementary role in the one flesh covenant union is a part of her service to the Lord. Okay, so for a wife, a Christian wife, part of how she serves Jesus is to embrace this equal and complementary role in the marriage, okay? And, and what that looks like is submitting to her husband, okay? Now, I know some of you might be dog whistling a little bit here, like, hold on, did you say equal? Because how is she equal if she's submitting to her husband? And that right there just points out a fundamental misunderstanding we have with the language of submission, Okay, Jesus was submitted to the Father, right? Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let's do that. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And yet we know that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is co-eternal, co-powerful, co-equal with God the Father. Okay, so we, we see in the Trinity how you can have submission without a differentiation in terms of value, in terms of uh, worth, okay? And that's the same way here. The body analogy really helps. I'm so glad Paul used this here because that's really what we're going to tap into. So let me ask you this question. I'm still, I'm still riding this train about, if, if you're like, well, hold on, eternal complementary, you know, role within marriage and that being a part of her service to Jesus, but how can you, how can a wife be submitted to her husband, seeing him as the head of their marriage and be equal? I don't, I don't understand that. Well, let me ask you this. In a human body, which is more important, the head or the rest of the body? That's a nonsensical question. 
Neither one can perform its intended function without the other. They work together for a common purpose. They have different roles, but are equal in value and importance. This is part of what Paul is getting at. When God joins a husband and a wife through covenant marriage, they become one flesh, willfully surrendering themselves to this new state of being bound together in the love of God and a healthy interdependence. And the husband's role not surprising to me, is boiled down to one thing, to love his wife. And we see here, that begin in verse 25, he, his role is boiled down to loving his wife. My question to you is, like who? This is not a trick question. Like who, love city? Like Christ. Husbands should love their wives like Christ loved the church. And how did Jesus love the church? By doing what for her? By laying himself down is what these scriptures say. It doesn't even leave you to figure it out. It says it for you. He loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? So husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Laid himself down for her. And this to me is why the whole argument that the Bible holds women down in general, but, but wives here in particular, is, is so silly. <laughs> what, what is this calling wives to? Wives are supposed to help their husbands on their mission. And what is a huge part of their mission, according to the verse, that is quite literally directly after the instruction to the wives? I mean, you don't even have to know a whole bunch about reading the scriptures in context to just read one more verse. You get to 24 and just be all fired up about, oh, it said, wives, submit to your husbands. I don't like that. For, for the, just, just read one more verse, man. It would fix it. Right? <laughs> oh, goodness. What does it say? A big part of his mission is to do what? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. What wife wouldn't want to help her husband with that mission? I'm struggling to see the issue, <laughs> but the issue is literally, it's just ignoring verse 25 and the rest of what this has to say here. This all goes together. It's when people isolate those first couple of, of scriptures and then run it through the meat grinder of their own cultural understanding and turn it into something that it's not. Okay? The Bible does say plainly that the roles within this thing is that the husband is the head and, and, and the wife is, is up under his leadership. But that only, that only hits people the way it tends to hit them when they think of leadership in human terms. When they think of leadership as the abuse of power and using people instead of loving people and following the example of leadership we see in God himself who sent Christ to be the word about who he is, to come and declare with life and, 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 and in deed and with all that he did and said how, what, what our God is like. Our God who is infinite in power, whose throne sits above every other throne, is the same God that got lower than any of us could ever possibly go in order to serve us and save us in Christ. That's what leadership looks like. And so then it doesn't feel like, starts to sound like such a dirty word when you, dis, when you define it God's way. Right? changes the whole paradigm. I understand that there are those that 
took verses 23 through 24 and used that to hold women down. But that's ignorant and stupid and wrong because they also didn't read verse 25. That husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, laying himself down for her. It can't get any plainer than that. How you get domineering little mini tyrant in your home from those verses, I fail to see. If anybody yet, I'm trying pretty hard. Just trying to get your feathers ruffled up. Make sure you're not bored. Okay. All right. And, and why? Why does, why does this? So let's keep, let's keep reading verses and see what happens. It gets even better. Why does he say he lays himself down for her in verses 26 and 27? So that he might sanctify her. He lays himself down for her. This is Jesus in the church. The model for husbands with their wives to sanctify her. Okay? How does Jesus do that with the church? Jesus sanctifies us by making us his disciples. Jesus came, gathered up 12 men, hung out with them, did miracles with them, ate with them, showed them what it meant to be his disciples, and then launched them with a mission to do what? Go and make disciples. This is the sanctification and multiplication plan of Jesus himself for the growth of his church throughout the ages. Okay? So what that means is husbands, okay, Jesus laid himself down for the purpose of sanctifying his bride. If we're supposed to love like Jesus, lay ourselves down, see the same, pers- see the same purpose in what we're doing, husbands should be thinking of their relationship with their wife as a discipleship relationship. Okay? Now some of you are getting nervous again. Well, hold on. Hold on. Yeah, you hold on. All right? <laughs> but here's the next question. What are we supposed to do in a discipleship relationship? This is deep now. We make disciples, okay? So if the husband's thinking about his relationship with the wife as a discipleship relationship, what's he doing? He's making disciples, making a disciple out of her. And what do disciples do? They make disciples. Oh, okay. So husbands should be discipling their wives. And if that is happening, then the wives should be equipped to then turn around and participate in the sanctification and discipleship of their husbands. Marriage is intended to be a discipleship relationship where there is a flow back and forth. God using each of you and each of us to disciple and sharpen and encourage the other one, push them towards Christ. Okay? Well, sometimes it's hard to get that going, so who goes first? Let, let me hear the men. Give me a big guess on who should go first. If there's a stalemate here, who, who do you think should go first? Probably the men, right? Because they're supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And Christ didn't sit around and wait for you to get it all right before he died for you. Oh, he's fired up. That's correct. You nailed it. So this, this whole idea, Paul zeroing in on this, this body thing, it, it led me to some word pictures. I, I feel like the Lord showed me while just thinking through this, and I want to share those now with you guys. It's all keyed off of Paul's use of the human body to help us understand the interaction and exchange between husband and wife and how all that looks. And listen, there's... We've done sermons in the past. We've unpacked that much farther, uh, and, and you, can, you can check that out. And, and if you need some more clarification in that, that's part of why we're doing a Q&A sermon in a couple weeks, okay? So um, we, we can unpack that further in, in other contexts. 
There are several ways, okay, several ways, and, and what I'm going to give you tonight isn't even all the ways, but it's some of the more prevalent ways, that this beautiful, love-motivated, Christ-centered, interdependent body metaphor for marriage breaks down, and it can end up tragically leading to the exact opposite outcome that God intended in bringing people together. And so I'm going to give you some of these ways by, by way of word picture, kind of following the mold of Paul here. Okay. Um, the first, and here, I just want to say this when <clears throat> he doesn't, it's not so clear here necessarily in Ephesians five, but when Paul uses the body metaphor in Corinthians to discuss uh, the church and how we relate to one another as individual members of the church, it's pretty clear if you know how to see it, that there's, there's humor in it. Okay, like he, he starts to say, well, what if the, what if the nose decides it, it wants to be an eye? Or what if the foot decides it wants to be a hand? It's really what he's doing is he's, kind of, he's making fun of sometimes the goofy things that we do, the ideas we get in our head as members of the church when we're tempted to be jealous of one another or we, we wish we could have what the other, envious and all that. He, in doing that, he's talking, I mean, how absolutely nutso is it if your hand decided it wanted to be a foot? or vice versa. He's really cracking a joke on us, okay? And I just want you to know uh, that's good for us because sometimes we can learn things through real like somber kind of serious ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and breaking us in that way. But there's really a, value, a lot of value too in being able to kind of see uh, our shortcomings as, as silly as they are sometimes and laugh at ourselves. So there's a little bit of that in here, okay? So the first word picture I'm going to give you is the rubbernecker, okay? These are the ways that this beautiful picture of a body, uh, of a marriage functioning as a body, two becoming one, breaks down. The rubbernecker. What is that? Well, it's a common term. I don't know if you've heard it or not, but it's like when somebody's driving by an accident, they're on one side of the highway, there's an accident on the other side of the highway, and they're driving, and this is, this is the reason why Mind you, human nature is awesome. The side of the highway that doesn't have an accident will still be slowed down by the fact that there's an accident on the other side of the highway. You can tell I'm a super patient driver, can't you? They'll, they'll, get, they'll get to where they're driving by the accident and they're doing, they're doing this number to look over here, right? So cars going this way, they're, they're rubbernecking, right? I don't have that great of neck flexibility, so that's all you get. But um, that's what I mean, okay? Now, this is, so this, this is what I, and I, I'm, I'm seriously asking this. This is kind of silly, but, but really. What would you think if you saw a person walking around like this, okay? They're doing this deal, okay? Neck full tilt back that way, walking hard the other way. What do we think? Something's wrong. <laughs> Uh, maybe multiple things, right? I don't know. Okay, so that's kind of a silly picture there, but <clears throat> this happens in marriages. There are marriages that look like a rubbernecker with the head face one way and the body rushing headlong the other way. Not only does it look silly, it's dangerous. As a matter of fact, when I started from that side of the sanctuary, I knew that this table corner was here and I was a little sketched out that I might run into it in front of all you people. So it's not good. It's not the way things are intended. You tend to want to look the direction you're headed, right? And this happens a couple ways in marriages, okay? The first is that 
Sometimes the wife is either unwilling or unable because of sin or a lack of understanding to follow her husband's headship. Now, there needs to be communication about the cause here instead of assumption. Did you hear what I said? There needs to be communication instead of assumption. And this is part of discipleship. Okay, because the reality is sometimes a wife will struggle to follow the headship of her husband just because of sin. And it's hard, right? Um, and we all have this kind of autonomous streak. We, we even do that with God. So sometimes it's a sin issue that needs to be dealt with. Sometimes it's not an unwillingness. It's an, it's an inability because maybe there's a lack of knowledge. Maybe they've never been taught. Maybe, they, maybe nobody's ever unpacked for them the beauty of how this could look. Maybe nobody's taken the time to understand that, help them understand that that doesn't mean you're under your husband, you know, the oppressive thumb of your, your dictatorial husband. Right? Because maybe that's the only way she can imagine it. Maybe the only example she's ever had of leadership in her life is bad leadership, not molded after the likeness of Christ. Okay? So there's a lot that's possibly going on there. So there's, it needs, there needs to be investigation, communication, and prayer through that. But some, you know, regardless of why it's happening, it happens. There are many times where wives are unwilling or unable to follow the headship of their husband. So the head's looking this way. Let's go that way. And the body's going, nope, we're going the opposite direction. And not only do you look goofy, you're going to run into something. It's going to go bad. Okay? The second way that this happens is that the husband has not shown that he is following Jesus faithfully. And thus, his wife struggles to follow his headship. Okay? Sometimes that's the reality. Uh, and again, that's why there needs to be communication and investigation on these things, not just assumption. Now, let me say something to be perfectly clear. This does not mean that the husband needs to be perfect or should have to be perfect. Okay. What this means is with, when, when the husband inevitably is imperfect, that he runs to the gospel and shows his family what it looks like to confess sin, to repent, and to receive forgiveness, to restore relationship and keep moving. That's what that means. Okay, so if, if it would be, it, we'd be back up in the sin category for the wife if what she's doing is expecting her husband to never have a flaw before she's willing to follow his headship. That is an unrealistic and unfair expectation. But husbands also cannot hide behind that perennial human, you know, hall pass of, well, nobody's perfect. We are aware, okay? <laughs> that is not a license for you to continue to be a dope, you know, and, and just do whatever you want, say whatever you want, treat her however you want, do, you know, be lax, be lazy, not be spiritual, not be leading your family, not be doing any of the things that look like Christ loving and leading his church, okay? So there's a balance there. And there's, there's really, if somebody's heart intention and, and desire is to just do what they want to do, there's a way to try to game the system from either side. Uh, just, I mean, just don't do that, though, because <laughs> that leads to pain and more and more problems. So how do we overcome the rubbernecker? Well, as I've already said, and you're going to notice there's going to be a pattern of repetition here, intentional communication is going to be key. Okay, James 1.19 says that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness which God requires. 
Do you hear that? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If you're having some of these complications and issues that need to be worked out, it's going to be essential that you have intentional communication, not just that you get self-righteous when you're finally ticked off enough about whatever's breaking down here, that the rubbernecker exists in your marriage, that you just bottle it up and get to the point where you're finally upset enough to bring it up, and then a bunch of old crazy stuff starts spewing out of your mouth, okay? Quick to listen. That means you're a good question asker. Slow to speak. That means you've thought about it. You've prayed about it. You're not just off emotion or off whatever, letting stuff come up out of your mouth. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Well, how do I, how do I control how slow I get angry? Oh, I, I can help you with that. You think more about the gospel. You think more about how long-suffering and patient God has been with you as you've learned how to be less and less of a doofus and be less and less controlled by sinful tendencies and proclivities, okay? All right. So the first was the rubbernecker. The second is the headless horseman, all right? Why do you think horror movies and scary ghost stories have depicted headless figures running around creating havoc? Because it's creepy, thank you, and terrifying, Yes, for sure. <laughs> That's why. Okay? And, and this happens in marriages, okay? In a couple ways. First, you have a husband who is either unwilling or unable to walk out his responsibility to lay down his life in pursuit of loving and discipling his wife. Okay? Just as there was before, there needs to be communication about the cause here instead of assumption. You may have a husband who doesn't even know what that means. You may have a husband who needs another godly man to help disciple him and teach him how to do that. It may not be the fact that he's sinfully positioned himself as not wanting to take up that mantle. He may just not know how. Now, it's going to take humility on his part to admit that he doesn't know how and to seek instruction and help on how that can happen. So it could be that, that it's, it's not a, an issue of being unwilling, it's, it's that they're unable, but there is also some who may be unwilling, who just, they, they look at what Jesus has done for his church. They look at what it's going to mean for them to lay down their life, to love and serve their wife and their family, and they may, they may look at all that cost and just decide, I'm not willing to pay that. That is sinful, it will not stand, and it needs to be repented of and dealt with. You guys excited about that? I can tell. It's true, though. Um, there's a couple points in Scripture where prophecy talks about God restoring the hearts of the children to the fathers and, and the fathers to the children, like a reconciliation there. And, and I just, I'm not sure I fully understand it yet. I think about it a lot. I pray about it a lot. And I look at our culture and our society, and I think... I think the abdication of this responsibility to love their family like Christ has loved the church is one of the leading causes of much of the chaos we see in our culture. Men not willing to walk in the mold of Christ, to love sacrificially, to lay themselves down, to be men as God intended men to be. That is a huge part of the problem. We need to own that. Step up to it. 
But we can't just... We can't just sit in here as God's people and scream about it. First of all, we need to repent of whatever that exists within these walls, and then we need to go out and show other men what that love looks like instead of sitting up on high horses thinking that we're doing something better. The only reason we have any chance of glimpsing any of this is because Jesus in his great grace came and took blind eyes and let them see. Amen. The second way that you have a headless horseman is that you have a wife who refuses to have a head. Maybe even Jesus, in some cases. And part of what can help with that is understanding Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, and understanding as to the Lord, not as the extent or the limit of her submission, but as the reason for it, right? Because Ladies, uh, I am fully aware of the reality that those of you who are wives, some days your husband uh, is, doesn't make it as easy for you as other days <laughs> to follow his headship. I get that. I, you know, I'm sure Natalie's never felt that way. I've read about this in books. Uh, <clears throat> I've seen it depicted in certain you know, movies and things of that nature. No, man, <laughs> there's been times my wife has had to make a concerted, serious, intentional decision that because of her commitment to Christ, she's going to deal with me a certain way. Because I wasn't giving her a reason right at that point. And that's, that's what I'm talking about. That grace and the reality of the gospel and what Jesus has done with each of us has to be in the mix of how we navigate these things. It's the only way we're going to come anywhere close to God's intention for how this looks. Without that, we're going to have tons of rubbernecking, tons of headless horsemen riding around, and both of those are freaky, okay? So how do we overcome the headless horsemen? Humble communication is key. Uh, I can't, for some reason it's escaped me, most days this guy's name is on the tip of my tongue, and I, I just don't, I don't, don't have it right now, but I know the quote. The finest art of communication is not being able to express your thoughts. It's being able to draw out the thoughts of another. And that's part of what I'm talking about when I mean humble communication. Whoever's quote that is, brother, forgive me. I can't remember. I'm giving you ghost credit. But <laughs> the point here is that principle is real helpful. Because most of the time when we think about communication, if, if I said to you, hey, so-and-so is a good communicator, what do you normally think? They're good at talking typically, right? But what, this, what that quote does, and really it's just tapping into a scriptural principle, right? James said, quick to listen, slow to speak. Really, godly communication is being a better listener and question asker than you are feeling expressor. Now, I understand that you can have a communication bottleneck if you have somebody that also can't express their feelings, but the hope is the other person on the other end of that is going to be more interested in drawing that person's feelings out and, and understand where they're coming from. And if you have that, if you have a love-motivated desire to understand more than be understood, then everybody still gets understood. And it's more of a gospel-shaped interaction. You guys with me on that? There's a lot of room in that for our communication to be more beautiful, more fruitful, and more reflective of the good news we have in Christ. Okay? Humble communication. You got to come to a conversation like that saying, 
I, okay, because this is what love demands of me, and the reason I know what love demands of me is because I'm looking to Jesus as my example. I'm going to come into this thing, and I'm going to look to understand more than be understood. And if, if both people will do that, man, you've got, you've got the prospect for something really precious. Okay? All right, so that was the rubbernecker. That was the headless horseman. The last that I'm going to give you is the wackadoodle. I told you these are kind of silly, but it's on purpose. All right, here's what I want to know from you. What would you think if you walked in a room and someone was biting their arm while punching themselves in the head? Right? Um, you know, there's, <laughs> there's terms that would be more pejorative and offensive. That's why I picked wackadoodle. Most people aren't going to be offended by that, but woo, buddy. Okay, that's, something's going on. Um, not good, for sure. Okay, fair enough to say that. Here's what you need to understand. Biting yourself in the arm, punching yourself in the head. This is how we look when we let disunity and strife run rampant in our marriages. If Paul is right, and I think he is, right? You got the husband is the head, you got the wife you got two people becoming one flesh. There's this idea that there's this, this connection and this interdependency that, that God does in bringing people together in covenant marriage. It's all, it's all the, the language you talked about of the, 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 the fusing and the, and the gluing that uh, we see in that Genesis language that Jesus hearkened back to in Matthew 19. We went over all that in week one. If I, I can't unpack all that again, but... Jesus said in Mark 3.25 that a house divided against itself can't stand. And if we understand what God does in infusing two people together in a marriage covenant, and we take that seriously, we see how absolutely ridiculous it is to fight with our spouse. It's equally as ridiculous as walking in on somebody, biting themselves in the arm while they're punching themselves in the head. That is ridiculous, right? I, I sat and thought a second for a really ridiculous thing. Like, you guys, did I get it? Okay, good. That's pretty ridiculous. And that's what I want you to see. I want you to see how ridiculous it is to fight with yourself when you fight with your spouse. I don't know. I think you're stretching this analogy too far. Hold on just a second. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. I don't think I'm stretching the analogy. I think I'm riding the analogy right into town. Okay? Now, I, I know lots of people will say, well, in a marriage, you just have to fight fair. Okay? I, I get what they're saying. Okay? If, if, if we're taking the call to participate in one another's sanctification seriously, there will be points of conflict that have to be dealt with. Yes. Not to mention just navigating through the grind of life together. Okay? Maybe some of those tension points aren't even going to be the result of this mutual desire to be actively involved in one another's sanctification process. Sometimes there's going to be that one or both of you have a bad attitude <laughs> and are being sinful, or just the pressures of life have caused you to act in an uncharacteristic way. All right? So yes, I get that point. We, we don't want, what I'm, what I'm not saying with the wackadoodle is don't ever have a discussion where there's disagreement. Not at all. But what I'm saying is, it should look nothing like 
what it sometimes looks like. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. But we need to, so yes, we need to have, you know, real love demands conflict. Jesus really loves us. That's why he deals with us, right? Jesus really loves us. That's why he doesn't leave us the way we are, okay? But we need to be really intentional with how we work through those tension points. So we don't end up biting ourselves in the arm while we're punching ourselves in the head. Because that's what ends up happening in a lot of marriages. So how do we overcome the wackadoodle? Kind and gentle communication is going to be key. Let me read you this from Colossians. This is a general call for all Christians and how they deal with one another and how they deal with other people. And so it should apply much more even to the person that God has fused you together with and made you one flesh with your spouse. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. Ooh, don't you like when he does that? Doesn't just call you to something, but then takes your hand and leads you right back to the gospel and say, here, in case you don't have a good reason for obeying what I'm telling you right here, set your eyes upon Jesus and obey with a smile on your face. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Kind and gentle communication. Guys, I know, I understand that in our sinful human tendencies, the person we are most likely to be short with, to, be, to snap at, are the people closest to us. Because we feel the most comfortable, we, there's, there's a sin of familiarity Many of you will talk to your spouse in a way you would not talk to a stranger, which is absolutely ridiculous. Next time you do that, and you need to confess and repent, go ahead and do all that, then I want you to go find a mirror, and I want you to bite your arm, and don't do it hard, well, as hard as you need to, and punch yourself in the head, and then laugh at yourself, and stop. And say, I'm a wackadoodle. <laughs> it's going to help you, man. So marriage is going to be helped with the wackadoodle. You, you can say whatever you want. Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Thank you, Proverbs. Whoo, that wasn't rocket scientist, but boy, do we forget to apply that very simple, logical. Let me just read it again. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You don't need a PhD for that one, but a lot of us seem like we don't get it in the way we talk to our spouses. And that's wretched, man. It's foolish, it's silly, and it's wretched. It's got to stop. If anybody deserves a gentle word from you, it's the person that God fused you together with and made you interdependent and put you on one mission, pushing each other towards him. It's the person that he took your gifts and talents and their gifts and talents and melted them together to make a unit that's now going to be more effective for the sake of God's kingdom. 
The person that God's given you as a partner like that deserves way more intentionality, way more concern and care and compassion and gentleness than anybody. And yet it seems to oftentimes be the reverse. It may not be so among us. Let's draw a line in the sand and say no more. I will not talk out the side of my neck to my spouse, man. I'm not going to do it. And when I do, I'm going to repent quick. Because it's foolish. It's silly. Friends, I know, I know that these word pictures I gave you, they're, they're kind of goofy. But honestly, so is the way we conduct ourselves sometimes in our marriages. And that's the point of this whole thing. I figured if Paul can make funny in 1 Corinthians, then I can here today. We need to remember there is so much more at stake than just the growth and peace and love in our own homes. The body analogy we see in Ephesians 5, it connects to the one in Corinthians and elsewhere. Guys, we are all tied together in the body of Christ, and we have a collective mission. And what we do with these things affects that. Okay? Absolutely part of the point of this sermon series is to have greater growth and sanctification and peace and joy in in each of our homes. Absolutely, yes. But part of it is also a, a, a recognition of the reality that when these things are broken in our individual homes, it, it handicaps us in our collective mission to keep marching forward, declaring the great, good, glorious word of Christ's gospel. And, and it's, this happens to be one of the primary ways that the forces of darkness try to get people out of the game, try to take people out of the fight. Because if the forces of darkness can get you looking side eyes at one another, there's no room left for you to engage in the real battle. It matters. (laughs) It matters at a cosmic scale that you talk right to your spouse. It matters at a cosmic scale, wives who struggle to accept the headship of their husband, that you figure it out, that you talk to somebody, that you talk to your husband. That you confess your sin if it's sin. That you work through and pray through why you struggle to do it if you can't. Husbands that are not standing in the place of being the head of their home as they should. The spiritual leader, the one to love first, to go lowest, to serve deepest. you got to figure out what your problem is. Did you not have a good example? Do you need to be discipled? Do you need help? Quit just leaving it like that. Be humble enough to say, I need help. Reach for it and get it. Because we can't afford for our homes to live in this kind of headless horseman, wackadoodle dysfunction anymore. There's too much at stake. Amen. Healthy Christ-centered marriages reflect the gospel to the world. And so this matters, friends. May our marriages be a source of joy and growth for us and a source of glory for our God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord. We thank you for Ephesians 5. God, thank you for the truth that uh, we but scratch the surface of all that's there. God, I, I ask that you right now, by the power of your spirit, that you would stir in the hearts of your people a desire to Go camp in these verses themselves, to dig themselves, to find all the gold that you've hidden there for us. And Lord Jesus, I just ask that uh, right now, 
by the power of your spirit, whether it's someone right now within the sound of my voice or someone that hears this sermon later, God, I ask that you would minister to their heart by your Holy Spirit, that they would not in any way be condemned by what they've heard here today, but that they would be convicted and they would be challenged to move, to do whatever is necessary, to continue to progress and to continue to move forward and come closer to this picture that you've painted of what it looks like to have a covenant biblical marriage. God, I thank you that there's hope for every single situation. God, I don't care how far somebody's situation looks from what they heard today. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a restorer and a redeemer and that you are a master at fixing broken stuff. And I'm so thankful that's true because, God, I was the brokest and you fixed me. And so I thank you. I know by faith that no matter where someone sits today, no matter how hopeless they may feel, God, if they will just reach to you in faith, that you'll meet them there, that you can bring answers and hope and power to bear on their situation. So God, may we believe that. And Lord, when we struggle to believe it, may we look again to the gospel. May we look again to your scriptures that from Genesis 3 forward, you were telling us what you were going to do and that your plan of redemption, it that that beautiful flower unfurled as Jesus came on the scene, that you told us over thousands of years, he's coming, here's how he's going to come, that you had a plan, that you're so mighty and you're so well able that even with all the imperfections of your people, you navigate and bring all that you want to happen down to a finite point. And then Jesus is born of Mary in Bethlehem. He lives the perfect life we couldn't, dies the death we should have, and then rose from the grave. And God, I thank you that you've promised in Ephesians elsewhere that you would bring that same resurrection power to bear in our lives. And God, I'm asking you to bring that power to bear in our marriages. Marriages, God, that people have thought maybe they're dead. God, I I ask you to just by the power of your spirit, absolutely overwhelm them with hope and faith to know that if Jesus can get up out of the grave, their marriage can be healed. And we thank you, Lord, that there's never, ever a situation that you can't come and absolutely turn around. We trust that. We see that. It's the might of your hand that gives us hope. And we thank you, God, that we can come to you and request these things and know that our prayers don't fall on deaf ears. Thank you. Thank you, God, that you know, even the things we don't know to pray for, you've promised that you'll fill in the gaps by your Holy Spirit. We can't mess this up if we will just come to you humbly and, and ask for your help. And so, Lord, we're doing that. Please help us. We need you. We can't do this without you. But I thank you that with you, anything is possible. We trust that. We declare your great glory and worth. We thank you for hearing us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.